Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, Alanisa Bomsawin, the Abenaki artist, activist, and documentary filmmaker, has dedicated her life to telling the stories of and giving voice to the country's indigenous people. I first interviewed Alanisa Bomsawin at her home in Montreal in the spring of 2008, when she'd received a Governor General's Performing Arts Award for Lifetime Artistic Achievement. And just before she went to New York, where the Museum of Modern Art had chosen her films for a major retrospective. During the few days in between, she not only agreed to see me, but insisted I come over for tea beforehand. I arrived at 11 in the morning. The table was laid out with homemade fruit crepes, a variety of cheeses, nuts she'd brought back from Hawaii, and smoked salmon, even though she's been a vegetarian almost since birth, a bit of a problem when she was a kid since her father was a hunting and fishing guide and he would try to get her to eat meat and fish. There was also tea, of course, a fragrant brew that she'd mixed herself. Alanisa Bomsawin is not only a former model, but someone who moves with nobility and grace. She's famous for her generosity, something you'll hear about in our conversation. Born in 1932, Bomsawin is a member of the Abenaki Nation. She grew up on the Odenac Reserve near Montreal. When she was nine, her family moved to Trois-Rivières, where she was the only Indigenous kid at school. In her 20s, she moved to Montreal and began a career, first as a singer and storyteller, and then, since 1967, as a documentary filmmaker with the National Film Board, where she's directed more than 50 films. Her first, Christmas at Moose Factory, is told entirely through drawings and stories of children at a residential school in northern Ontario. But Abomsawin is probably best known for her series on the so-called Oka Crisis, the 78-day armed standoff in 1990 between Mohawk warriors and the Canadian Army. That was after the town of Oka tried to expropriate Mohawk land for a golf course and luxury condominiums. In fact, Abomsawin's Oka Quartet has been called the most important narrative and historical archive of native settler relations in existence. Indigenous rights, whether land rights, treaty rights, fishing rights, or human rights, figure large in all of her films. And no matter what she turns her camera on, she's tough, respectful, and compassionate. Now 91 years old, Alanisa Bomsawin is still making films. A couple of years ago, she was awarded the $100,000 Glenn Gould Prize, presented by an international jury chaired by Laurie Anderson. And she was also named a Companion to the Order of Canada, one of the country's highest civilian honours. Just last summer, she won the U.S. Edward McDowell Medal, presented to an artist who's made an outstanding contribution to their field. Previous winners include Toni Morrison, Georgia O'Keeffe, Stephen Sondheim, and Leonard Bernstein. 
When we spoke in 2008, we began our conversation by talking about her early years. You were born near Lebanon, New Hampshire in 1932, and there's a story that not long after you were born, you almost died. Yes. What happened? I was born actually in Lebanon, and that is a, a Beneke territory. And our people have always, to this day, always go back all over New England because this is where all our people were. There, the Maritimes and the southern part of Quebec. And when I was six months, I was taken to Odenac, which is the reserve where my parents were born. And my mother went back to the States and uh, I stayed with my aunt and uncle and their children. And not long after, I developed, uh, they didn't know what it was, but apparently my body was covered with something that looked like eczema, but it wasn't eczema. And uh, it got so bad that I was supposed to die, that I was in coma. The local doctor of next door, which is called Pierreville, had come and said that they shouldn't move me, but they should watch me. I was supposed to die that night. And this old aunt of my mother came in. Apparently she was very angry. And she wrapped me up in a blanket. And she took me to her little house. And she kept me for six months, and I survived. But, but you don't know exactly what she did to, no, to keep you alive? nobody knows. Nobody knows, yeah. Do you know why your parents um, moved back to the Odenac Reserve near Montreal? My father always remained there. He didn't go to the States. He was a guide in the bush in a place called Lac Lapège, where all the Abenakis went to work there as guides. In those days, they had these lakes which were owned by groups of people. They were called private clubs. And so they had, in this case, 35 members from the States and 35 from Canada. And obviously all these people were very rich people who came there a few weeks a year and hired these guides for hunting and fishing. So generation after generation, the people of Odenek, all the men would go there. And also... In those days, it was still the tradition when someone died and knew how to cure certain illness in a family, one of the children would receive the way of doing this as a heritage. It was like inheriting a piece of furniture. My father had it for... Uh, the, the incredible thing was he was able to cure a lot of skin disease including serious disease of the time, like syphilis. And um, my mother could make people pass their gallstones and problems with the liver. So there were a lot of people over the years that they helped and cured them from those problems. I read somewhere you used to play with the gallstones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she used to put them in a tomato can, an empty can, and I didn't know what they were. <laughs> she used to just play with them like marbles. So they helped a lot of people. But it, was, it all had to be done underground because if you were caught, you went to jail because that was considered like a charlatan. Uh, a charlatan uh, in terms yeah. of practicing traditional medicine uh, illegally, I suppose, yes, or without yes. official training. Yes. 
What was the Odenak Reserve like when you were growing up there in the nineteen yes. in the nineteen thirties? The reserve is still very small to this day, but it was a a large piece of territory originally. But of course, it's all been taken. Now it's only like one mile long by four miles wide, and in my time, when I was a young girl, it was it's probably the best memory I have of of my young age, mainly because uh, it was small and a child was the responsibility of of all the adults. So you could walk into any house and it was your house. Like, you know, people didn't say, don't come here, never. And I uh, fed you, it was uh, mealtime and it was like a huge family. And everybody in those days, all the women made baskets. So you could smell the ash and the sweet grass in every house. When I say ash, I mean the tree. Not not cigarettes. <laughs> no. And it, the beautiful colors of all the splints were dyed in different colors. And the baskets were just beautiful. And the man made canoes or bulkier basket, huge ones. So the sound that you heard, like men pounding the... Uh, ash tree to get the splints off. For me, it was real music. <laughs> then, you know, the children, a lot of us braided the sweet grass. And my uncle used to make these small birch bark canoes and we had to put all the pins on cushions. And, you know, everybody was busy doing something. And uh, it's I remember mostly the scent in every house. It was so comforting to smell the sweet grass. And all those things that they use, you know, of nature to work with. We didn't have any running water or um, the light, like it was oil lamps. And we had an earth road. And everything that was happening was on that road. <laughs> so small. And most people spoke three languages. Abenaki, English and French? Yes. And I understand two big influences in your life back then, your aunt Alanis and your mother's cousin, Théophile Panadis. Yeah. How did they influence you? My aunt, uh, she was, I well, for me in those days, I thought she was very tall. And uh, she made baskets. And she used to sit by one of the windows in her house, and she you could always see her through the window. She was making baskets. And she had two daughters who were married. You know, they were adults. And me, I used to sing all the time. I was a real pest. I'd rock on the rocking chair and I'd sing loud. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was so funny. Like, I remember one time one of the daughters, Eva, she, I, I love them. They were really wonderful. She said, oh, Elanis, could you stop singing just for a little while? <laughs> and my aunt, I stopped rocking. I was so insulted. And my aunt said, you don't like her singing? You go and sit on the porch. I want her to sing for me. I could do nothing wrong. She really spoiled me. And uh, Theo taught me many things like songs and our history. What kinds of songs were you singing? Lullabies in our language and uh, songs that uh, were written maybe uh, 150 years ago. They were modern comparing to the old chants. And uh, tell me, you know, why these songs were made. Like there's one lullaby there. 
I used to sing a lot, and it's can, about. Can you still sing? <laughs> it's about the time. Apparently, on the land here, there were hundreds and hundreds of turkeys everywhere, wild turkeys, and it's about a mother who's got her baby in a ticking organ. You know, the plank and you 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 make an envelope over this, and the baby, it's very good for the back, is tied on this, and. Um, She says that it's very early in the morning, and the baby began to cry. So she sings, she says, oh, those turkeys, they make so much noise. They wake you up, and she just rocks the ticking organ like this, and she just says that, puts her baby back to sleep. Kiziatu wasakula. Aum wizak tal kwak swak. Kiziatus wasakula. Aum wizak tal kwak swak. Kiziatu wasakula. Aum wizak tal kwak swak. I'm 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 with your aunt. <laughs> I want you to keep singing. <laughs> When you were nine, your family moved to Trois-Rivières, and you said that's when the trouble began. What, what, what did you mean? Well, I was the, we were the only family there at the time, you know. The and, only First Nations family? Yes. And I went to school there, and it was probably the worst time of my life. So you went from the best time of your life to the worst yes. time of your life? It's when I realized I was poor. I didn't know that before. I wasn't poor before. Now all of a sudden I was. And uh, it was just awful. What, besides besides being poor, what, what happened? Well, you know, I was very much beaten a lot by other children, many times a week. So it didn't matter which way I went home, you know. I used to fall a lot. They'd run after me and I'd fall on the sidewalk. My knees were always very raw or scabby. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it took quite a few years before I reacted and decided nobody's going to do that to me anymore. And how did you come to that realization? That you Mainly that? it was when my father died. By then I was 12. And uh, I was very disturbed and I remember I was rocking in the kitchen and my father was in a coffin in another room in the, the same house and um, <clears throat> I was thinking nobody's going to beat me up anymore but how do you change that so I was figuring out how I'm going to do it and in the classroom they seem to always be um, studying the massacre of Lachine Whenever they were reading the history of Canada, that's what it was. And how bad the Indians were and how they, what they did to those poor priests and, and the scalping. And, you know, and I had a habit of just putting the book higher in front of my face because all the children used to turn around and make faces at me. So I thought, well, this next time, I'm not going to put the book in front of I started like that. There was, two, you know, more than 30 kids in this class, so 
you can't uh, fight 30 kids, you know. So I thought, it's going to be the first one who turns around. I made myself all these rules. When I went back and it happened again, I don't know how I flew over two or three rows of a desk. I saw the first girl that turned around. And I grabbed her and I had her on the floor and I started really punching her. It was really bad. And the nun who was in front couldn't even react because I never did that before. I never fought back. I never, you know, fought with anybody. They beat me up and I was there and that's it. So I remember the girl, she peed on the floor and she, you know, she was screaming and crying, of course. Then I returned to my desk and I just stood there, look at everybody. And they were so shocked, I guess. Then we had to go outside at recreation time. I made myself my rules. I said, I stand by the brick wall. I'll know there's never anybody behind me. So it was all happening in the front. They would start saying things to me. I'd say, well, come close. I can't hear you well because I didn't want to move from there. And then a fight would start, but I was fighting back. Why do you think, I mean, the death of your father and you're so young and that would, must have been so terrible. Why, why do you think your resolve came from that? I couldn't tell you. I, it was just, I guess I felt so bad that my father had died. For some reason, somewhere, I, I changed. I got the strength to stand for myself. How did his death change your life in other ways? Well, I grew up, and uh, the, the horrifying things as I became a teenager, for, for instance. <laughs> Unavoidable when you grow up. Yeah. <laughs> then I could see all these guys after me, you know, that really called me all kinds of names previously, and I thought never would I have any kind of relations with them. And that went on for a long time. It took me a long time to um, not feel so angry at that time of my life. It took me a long time. And at that time you spoke Abenaki and French. How did you come to learn English? Not before I was 24 years old. I started learning English again in the hard way. And you went to Florida, I bet? Yes. And I went English. for two weeks and I stayed for two years. You were a bathing suit model. Yes. <laughs> I was that? working for Catalina Bathing Suit. Well, I had been modeling from the time I was 16 in a lot of fashion shows and high fashion clothes, you know. So uh, when I went to Florida, I was, I was only visiting my aunt who had a, and my uncle who, who had a house in Delray Beach. And then I started thinking I should stay a little longer and try to learn English and try to. So I got a job to model bathing suits, but I was worried about being in a place such as Florida, first of all, that I didn't know. And, you know, the in these kinds of jobs, it's also very dangerous if you don't know where you are. And I got a job staying with children in a family where I could feel very secure. Had to mind the children every night and sleep there. And during the day, this family gave me a car, and I could go and model all day the bathing suits, and then I'd come back at night, stay with the children. I love children. And uh, I was learning English, and I took uh, the Indian Act. And I had the Indian Act, French and English, over here. 
and a dictionary over here so that I could fight as well in English than in French. And even in French, it was hard to understand the language because... They, it's very legalistic. Yes, and you read a paragraph and then this no longer applies. They refer you to another paragraph. Oh, a terrible puzzle. But I learned the most difficult words in English that way. Like things that really upset me in this uh, book, I would repeat and repeat the word in English so that I could do it in English too. And then in your early 20s, you settled in Montreal and, and, and became part of the whole sort of bohemian scene. Yeah. Can, can you talk a bit about what, what that was like? I was 24 when I came here. I've been here ever since. And that was a very exciting and a very nice time in my life. Because I was with a group, uh, I met all kinds of wonderful people. And the atmosphere in Montreal then was so extraordinary. It was very different than it is now. In, in what way? I think uh, in terms of culture and in terms of artists being very present. And there was a lot of concerts at McGill and plays. And by now I could speak English, you know, not extremely well, but I could certainly handle a conversation. And uh, we used to sing, we used to have parties and sing for hours all together. And it was a wonderful time. During your 20s and early 30s, you traveled around Canada as a singer and storyteller, performing in schools and university and cultural centers, arts festivals, but also a lot of prisons. Yes. Why in prisons? Because at that time, we're talking about the 60s now, in the prairies... In Ontario, the population in the prisons were 68% First Nation people. And I wanted to visit them and sing for them and include them with all the places I was going to. And whenever I went to sing in a town, in a city somewhere, I would always ask, where's the prison? Are there a lot of Indian people there? And they'd say, yes, that's okay, I want to go there. And they're always in places like that. They don't want you to go close to the men because they think they're going to attack you or, you know, things like that. So I was terrible because I was never, I never had that frightened feeling in me. I just had a loving feeling in me that I came to just say hello and to tell them that you have a life. For me, life is sacred for all. Your, your life as a singer and storyteller led to a lifelong association with the National Film Board. How did it all begin? It wasn't my idea because I didn't know anything about film. But my fight for uh, changes in schools, like I did a lot of residential schools and a lot of other schools, brought me to do a campaign to uh, build a swimming pool on my reserve in the 60s. And from that, Ron Kelly, who did a lot of work for CBC at the time, did a a short film on what I was doing. And it appeared on this program called Telescope in 1966. And some producers at the board saw it and asked me to come there. And in those days, they had these small theaters where people used to go and look at their films. So they sat me, somebody put a chair at the front, and they had all these top producers and directors sitting in the theater. 
And uh, somebody said, well, just tell us some stories like you do in school. And I sat there and I started telling them stories and dreams I had. And, and then eventually I was asked to be a consultant on a film. And from then on, I stayed. And in, in 1971, you made your first film, a 13-minute documentary called Christmas at Moose Factory. We have a short excerpt from Christmas at Moose really? Factory. It begins with a Cree version of the popular children's hymn, Jesus Loves Me. That was from Christmas at Moose Factory by Alanis Abomsawin. Alanis, why did you want to make this film? Tell me about that. First of all, I had started a long time before. It came out in 1971. I started in 67, 68, 69. I went to Moose Factory. And um, I went to a residential school because I wanted to reach, wanted to be with children at a residential school. And I went to a, a place that was far enough, isolated enough that that would be a place like that would be ignored in a lot of ways. And I wanted to go where nobody had been there. Where is it? How far? It's uh, James Bay on the Ontario side. Okay. It's the end of the tree line. It's like subarctic. And I stayed. I lived with the children there. So what I did, I would go from classroom to classroom and tell stories to the children so that they would know me and, you know, play with them at recreation time and play Indian games and all sorts of things. I made toys for them, too. So by the time the children were, knew me so well, I started asking them to tell me stories about themselves. And get, they were used to the recorder now, and, uh, and that's how I made the film, because I wanted their voice to uh, be heard. And for them to illustrate what they did. That's and how. they made pictures and drawings. Yeah. Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. Elanis, during the 70s, you made a number of films, including Mother of Many Children, about Native women in Canada, and Amisk, which deals with the huge hydroelectric project that affected the the Cree of, of James Bay. And then in 1984, you made Incident at Restigouche, in a sense, your most openly political film to that date about what you call the the biggest and most violent action in Canada versus Indians in in 50 years. What was the Incident at Restigouche? 
It was a scandal because uh, it had to do with fishing rights. And for a very long time, the Mi'kmaq people were persecuted when it was fishing time. The uh, government would make rules and laws. They tried to stop them from fishing or oblige them to fish only at a certain time and only so many fish, while at the same time they had commercial fishing going on by the white big uh, companies. And so they constantly fought for their rights. And there were battles and beatings every year. It was uh, very bad. And then in 1981, this minister, Lucien Lessard, who was the minister for fisheries at the Quebec uh, level, after many arguments with the Mi'kmaq and they couldn't come to uh, an agreement in terms of fishing time. And he threatened them that uh, if they didn't obey his rules, that he would raid them. And that's what happened twice. One of the most remarkable moments in your film, Incident at Restigouche, is when you interviewed Lucien Lessard, the minister of fisheries in the Picou government of René Lévesque, and the man who ordered the raids on Restigouche. Here's part of that interview. When you came to Restigouche, I was outraged by what you said to the band council. It was dreadful. The chief said, you French Canadians are asking for sovereignty here in Quebec. You are saying, it's your country and you want to be independent in your country. We're surprised that you don't understand us Indian people and our sovereignty on our land. And you answered, you cannot ask for sovereignty because to have sovereignty, one must have one's own culture, language and land. Est-ce que à l'intérieur actuellement selon on va reconnaître par exemple le gouvernement du Québec The government of Quebec will recognize a collectivity at Moraya which is entirely sovereign. How far does that sovereignty go? It's a question of definition. Does it go as far as for example control of the whole resource? Certain native chiefs are creating illusions for the native people. The Gaspé Peninsula, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, etc. It belongs to us. Do you mean to tell me at this point, Montreal too belongs to you? Of course, all Canada belongs to us. Are you saying that you're going to exclude us? Did we tell you to get the hell out of here? We never said that. We always shared. You took, took, took. Instead of being proud of us, you talk of your history, your Quebec. The history of Quebec does not begin with the French Canadians. That was an excerpt from Incident at Restigouche by Alanise Abomsouin. Alanis, you're, you're challenging the minister is tough and, and somewhat yes. unusual for a documentary filmmaker. The, the convention is to draw out the subjects and not express yourself so, so directly. Was that difficult for you? Well, I was so angry at him because I was in Ristigouche uh, when he came and I saw how he treated the chief. And Lucien Lassar refused to speak English. I don't know if he did speak English, but they had an interpreter for him. And the chief then refused to speak English because he couldn't speak French. So he spoke only in Mi'kmaq. So for Lucien Lassar to say to the chief, for sovereignty, you have to have your language, your land, and uh, your culture. Your culture. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And uh, I invited him to Montreal to interview him. And he came. And we did the interview at my house. 
And firstly, I took him out to lunch. I said, what do you like to eat the best? He said, fish. And I used to go to Le Paris a lot. And people said to me, oh, the Paris, they make wonderful fish and uh, meat. See, I don't eat meat or fish. So I took him there. And Le Paris, you must have been there before. It's a very small restaurant. And we sat there and we argued the whole time of lunch. And, you know, people, they knew who he was. They knew who I was. It was dead <laughs> silence there. <laughs> we just fought the whole time. Then I took him to my house and it continued. I argue and argue with him because he just would not recognize that First Nation people here were here long before anybody else came here, that you had to respect that. And he just wouldn't have any part of it. So we continue fighting the whole time of the interview. But at the end, he was a little apologetic, or at least yeah. more, a little more respectful, yeah. I think. I asked him if if he wanted to say anything. But man, oh. And then the, the joke part. All this stuff was shot in 1981 and 82, and it never came out until 84. Because? Uh, because... At the board, I couldn't uh, get uh, the needs to finish it for that length of time. At the film board in those days, they had a committee program. And you had to go in front of them when you're asking for money to make a film or if you need more money. And when I went first with the producer at the time, there was a woman there who was the director of this committee program. And she had a really weird voice. So she says to me, she said... Alanis, I don't want you to interview the whites. You hear me now? You interview the Indians, not the whites. So I didn't say anything. And when I came back, we needed more money. And she seized this interview. I thought she was going to pass out. She was so mad. So she started reprimanding me. And then I really gave it to her. The nerve telling me who I can interview or not whether they're black, white, yellow, or any color. Since when? Is this in your mandate? You know? It was very racist. And no one else in the room said anything? Well, they were shocked that yeah. she said that to me. But. Yeah. So it was difficult. But I finally finished the film after a long period of uh, fighting for it. And you showed it at first at Restigouche. Oh, it was such a moving experience. The children were running around and making a lot of noise. And as soon as the film started, all the children sat down because they were all there during the raid. And it was unbelievable, the attention. And in the film, I don't know if you remember, there's a man that's being paraded on the reserve and there's a police officer that's grabbing grabs his him by, hair, the hair. by the hair. And he explained what happened to him. He was in the water and this officer just grabbing by the hair and lift him up. And when this happened... That man told me, he said that uh, his son, I guess, was embarrassed to have seen his father being grabbed like that. And when I went to show the film, the boy was older, and this man told me that his son just kept sitting next to him and obviously did no longer think his father was a bad man because if you see someone being uh, handcuffed and you think uh, in general that this person must have done something terrible. And now he got a different feeling that his father 
was far from being a bad man. He was a good man. And uh, so the power of images, the power of film is so incredible because this is part of our history and you cannot deny it. People start looking at each other and they see something they have never seen before. And it makes for better relations, better understanding. Alanis, one of your saddest films is Richard Cardinal, Cry from the Diary of a Métis Child. Uh, it's, a, it's about a boy who was shuffled through 28 different foster homes and institutions before he committed suicide at 17. How did you come to make a film about his story? At the time when this happened, I was out west in Edmonton, and I was in my hotel one night and I'm watching the news and this woman, Mrs. Crutters, was being interviewed, and she said that this young man, after being with them just for a month or two, hung himself in their yard. And there was a picture of uh, Richard hanging in the tree. So I decided to go and see this family. I wasn't thinking of making a film. I thought I didn't want them to regret the fact that they took him in. And I just went as an Indian people, as if I was a relation to Richard. In a way, I am because I'm a, a native person, That just for that. And I called them and I asked them if I could come and interview her, talk to her and him. And they said yes. And I took a tape recorder with me and I asked them if I could tape them, not to do anything with it, but for me to have it, to transcribe it and understand what happened there. So he didn't want to talk, but she talked to me. And uh, you can imagine, they, they, he had only been there six weeks altogether. So it was really horrifying. You know, they didn't know anything about Indians. They listened to the radio, and they were asking for people to take in foster, especially teenagers. It's always difficult to find places for kids that are older. And she said, I tell my husband, well, you know, our kids are married. We have all this room. Why don't we take one in? So I start talking to them about the reality of our people and all the problems that uh, people were going through and for many generations now and want to tell them the history of how it is that we have so much suicide and we, you know, how our people get there because obviously they were not aware of any of it. So I went to see them several times. Meanwhile, the press was incredible. The journalist did such a good job at uh, challenging the minister to do an inquiry. He didn't want to hear about it. And the press just continued. It was in the papers every day. Finally, they have to do an inquiry. So I said, well, I'm going to go and attend the inquiry. So I went and I stayed with, uh, I would go to their house, the Crudders, and one night there was a terrible storm and I thought, oh, I have to drive back to Edmonton. I was hoping they'd ask me to stay there. So they said, would you like to sleep here? And I said, yes. And I said, I would like to sleep in Richard's bed. And I slept there. And immediately when I went to bed, the dog came up and stayed in bed with me the whole night. And I was really trying to reach Richard. I was, I was asking him how he felt, what, 
was it like? And and I had this horrifying dream. I dreamed that I was in a, in a place, you know, in the garage when they're repairing a car and the car is way up there. Well, I was lying down on some large piece of iron and the car was coming down on me. By the time I woke up, I thought I was going to have a, a heart attack. And that was my answer. I thought, how awful he felt, you know. It was giving me an example of where he was. And then I thought, I, maybe I'll do a film. I should do something. And I attended the inquiry. And I learned so, so much through the inquiry because all of us, all the people, were very angry at the last social worker. But when he came into the box and be questioned by the judge, then we all changed our mind. I certainly did because he started to explain that himself, he had a hundred cases. That means a hundred young teenagers. Human beings. Yeah. Human beings. And they were all placed in the space of about 200 miles. And the rule was he had to visit every one of them once a month and make a report. How can you... One social worker covered that. And so he'd go in and say, how are you? You're okay, goodbye, and wrote a line. Uh, I saw Richard, he's all right. But you know, like you saw that this wasn't the fault of the social worker at this point. It was the government who was creating that kind of uh, terrible uh, way of doing their responsibility towards these kids who were wards of the government. So then you realize where the problem was. And Richard left a diary, which yes, that's gave you a very... thing on, on, in the film. And I wanted to give him all the times for him to have his voice heard. So it's a very sad film, but it's also very beautiful because it's his voice. He was very uh, articulate in uh, explaining what happened to him. He's a real poet. And that film is just a half-hour-long film made big changes in the Alberta government and their system towards the wards that uh, they changed the whole system. Alan Isabamsa, when you're, you're probably best known for the four films you made about the 1990 Oka crisis, the, the armed standoff between Mohawks and the Canadian Army after the town of Oka tried to expropriate Mohawk land at uh, Kanesataki for a golf course and a condo development. The crisis lasted 78 days, but you call your first film, Kanesataki, 270 years of resistance. Why 270 years? Because I counted the years. It's exactly that amount of time when the Sulpician came there and started telling them that they didn't own any land and cheated them out of their land and lied to them, beat them too, that it was horrible. And the Mohawks really, generation after generation, knew that this was their land. And it's, it's for that reason. You spent the entire 78 days of the crisis behind the barricades at the Kanesataki. Your, your crew was the only one that was allowed access. What was it like for you? Have you ever heard of working in hell? <laughs> It was very difficult to, to do your work in this kind of atmosphere. And, you know, yeah, there was guns everywhere. I hate guns. But uh, I saw people having so much courage and believing 
why they were doing it. And, and I saw the other side not wanting to recognize that this was Mohawk land. It's still saying this is not your land. And knowing my history and the history of this country, this has happened to all the reserve previously, but nobody ever knew about it. And our people didn't have much defense either, politically or otherwise. So a lot of the land has been lost for all nation in this country in the same manner. And when the Mohawks did that stand, it became a turning point for all the reservations in Canada. It would be much harder now for any municipality to try and do this again. And the Mohawk did it. Were you ever afraid? Oh, yes, I was afraid most of the time, especially at night. It was very scary. Yeah, I was afraid, but uh, I've been afraid before. But when I make a decision like that, I do it. doesn't mean to say I'm not afraid. I am afraid. But there's another feeling that's stronger than being afraid, and that is the love that I have for human beings and for human rights. And it's stronger than being afraid, so I do it. And, and you said you've made, your work comes out of love, but how did you handle the anger? I mean, I was thinking especially when a Mohawk warrior named Spud Wrench is almost beaten to death. Ugh, that was, I can't explain to you what it felt like, you know. And to see the lies that were told about it, too. You know, you see everything. You see the reporters at the end of the line who were saying that, uh, oh, five warriors were had a fight with uh, five uh, army, and it, it's saying that it's the soldiers that got hurt. And to see, it's right in, f- in front of you what really happened, and they're still telling another story. That's very heavy for anyone if you see exactly what's happening there and to see that. It was very important that I stay to the end and do what I did. Spud Wrench was a nickname for Randy Horn, one of the many Native iron workers who, yes. who go all over North America to build bridges and yes. high-rises. You made a, another film about him. But when he heard what was going on at Kenesataki, he dropped his work and, and came back to yes. defend the land, as did many others. How do you explain this intense love of land that, and, and the desire to protect it under uh, to the death if necessary? Well, I think it's pretty much part of all our lives. Some people wouldn't go to that extent to put themselves in danger, but a lot of people would because it's something, it's been attacks after attacks on all the nations. And all it's always justified. And if you protect yourself and you stand up, then you're the bad savage and you know they call you all kinds of names because all of a sudden you stand up, you, you say no, no more then you're bad. They're the ones who, who, who are trying to steal again and do something against the land, against nature, against the people. It's always against. This country was built against. So now it's a different time. People uh, realize that uh, you do have rights. You do have human rights like everybody else. Plus you also have the rights to your land. And if you do nothing, it just stays. The Oka crisis seems to have been a moment of radicalization for for many First Nations people all over North America. How do you see that? 
I think it's really a different time. It's only in the 60s, for the first time, that the government agreed to have an office where all the different nations could write and expose where their lands were. It was the first time that they call it land claims. We say land rights, which is a different expression because land claim, it means you're claiming something. Nobody's claiming anything. They're trying to go back to their land and make sure that they have rights on it. And even at that, it's not all the land because then nobody's going to throw anybody out. But there's there are lands there that is called crown land, parks and places like that that belong to the people and the resources. You know, when uh, Lucien Lessard said in that time, he says, some chief uh, give illusion to the people. They say it's their land and their resources. From that time that he said that, look at where we are today. Now they're starting in certain areas to benefit from the resources. He made fun of that. But it's coming through now. They're starting to be much more respect for the for First Nations people in this country. And some of the land has gone back to the nations and there's been compensation. It's a very different time. So those things that he made fun of are happening now. And it's going to grow to better the life of our people. This is why I am so encouraged. I think that we have a future, a hopeful future. Not to say that everything is okay with our people. No, it's not so. There's still a lot of hardship. There's still a lot, lot of suicide. There's still a lot of poverty. But we're going towards something better. I am positive of it. And I see it as I travel in many places in this country. Today you're em embraced by the National Film Board. You win major awards and honors. Uh, your films are shown in international film festivals, schools, universities, the Museum of Modern Art in New York is even doing a major retrospective of your work. You're no longer working at the margins, and yet you retain a sense of outsiderness or identification with those who are yes. suffering at the hands of, of arbitrary power. Yeah. I will never leave them. Even if I was a millionaire, or you know, even if I had all kinds of power, I will always think of making a better place for them because they're still there. There's a lot of people that have been able to find their way. And I often tell my story because I want them to hear that if I am where I am today, it's because I refuse to be what they told me I was. I refuse to feel inferior. I never felt inferior, although they told me I was. I refused to live on the street, although I was told I should sell my body. I never have, and I never will. And you don't have to. You end up there because you believe what they tell you. You start looking in the mirror and you start to believe it must be true what they say I am. Well, I never did that. And I always fought back. And that's what I want. Our people, and not just our people, people of the world who are made to feel less. It's not true. And I just want my own people to understand that, that they can get up and find a place. It's not easy, but it's possible. And that's for all women, 
and all men that are put down and children. I hate the fact that still there's so many children in the world that don't have a, a life as children. And until I die, I will never be separate from them. And, you know, often I go places and uh, people say, what can I do? The changes has to come from us. It has to come from within. But what you can do when you're walking on the street and you see someone on the sidewalk, on drugs or on liquor or whatever you call it, and uh, living a life of misery, just acknowledge that life. Instead of crossing the street or looking at a person like that with your eyes saying, boy, if you could only be invisible, because that's what most people do, why don't you smile and look at that person in the eyes? Just acknowledge that life. That's the beginning of change. To respect life for all, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how terrifying. That's life. It's sacred for all people. And you deserve to have that respect. It's a privilege to have the chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Abenaki filmmaker Alanisa Bomsawin at her home in Montreal in 2008. You can watch many of her films on the National Film Board website. For listeners in Montreal, Alanis will be giving the 2023 Beattie Lecture at McGill University on October 16th. For listeners in the Toronto area, the Art Museum at the University of Toronto has a new exhibition dedicated to her work titled The Children Have to Hear Another Story. It's on until November 25th and includes an onstage conversation with Cameron Bailey on November 16th. This week's show was produced by Sasha Hastings. Katie Swales is also producer. Melissa Gismondi is associate producer. Technical operations by Will Yar. The senior producer of Writers and Company from the Archives is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, my conversation with the Irish writer Anne Enright, winner of the 2008 Man Booker Prize for her daring novel, The Gathering. She has a new book called The Wren, The Wren. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.